0: Today, we are going back to ancient history. We're going to talk about the deep connections between high politics, military strategy, and economics. The story of the Roman Republic's approach to strategy was one of expansion, rapacious expansion. New additions to the territory under the Republic's control needed to generate revenue that offset their costs. The story of the Roman Empire's strategy, on the other hand, was one of maintenance, How could this vast enterprise, now under monarchic control, be maintained? And most importantly, how could it be kept profitable for its masters?
1: It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate.
0: We continue to face a grave
1: situation in Iran. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender.
0: Hi, I'm Aaron McLean. Thanks for joining the School of War. I'm joined today by Dr. James G. Lacey, who serves as professor and course director for war policy and strategy, as well as political economy at the Marine Corps War College. He's the Marine Corps University's Major General Matthew C. Turner Chair of War Studies. And he's the author of numerous books, most recently, Rome, Strategy of Empire. James, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Before we get into your book and the subject, I just wanted to ask you maybe to to tell us a little bit about yourself. I obviously gave the the top lines of the bio there, but you've had a, a long and interesting career to include time in uniform, time as a journalist.
1: Tell us a bit about yourself. I, 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 huh. Really wasn't expecting that question because it, every time I give my short resume, it just sounds like I can't keep a job. I started out, you know, I've always been a lover of history. So I've, I started you know, substantial readings when I was young and never ended. But professionally wise, I was a Army infantry officer on active duty for a dozen years. And then I retired out of the reserves. I worked a number of operations jobs on Wall Street. I left. The office was on the 82nd floor of the World Trade Center, and I went home at the end of the day in 9-11 and said, you know, I think I'm going to go in a different direction. Started writing, got a column in the New York Post and New York Sun following week. And then Time Magazine offered me a job, made me an embedded journalist for the invasion of Iraq. I embedded back into a company I bet, brigade that I'd been a company commander in a few years before, so that was an interesting arrangement. The brigade command was actually a company commander with me at the same time. And then I went to the Institute of Defense Analysis for seven years, got my PhD on military history, switched from there to Marine Corps University. And I'm currently been there about a dozen years and been the uh the chair of war studies, the chair of war studies and writing books. So that's 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 the that's the quick summary, and there's some Interpretations in between.
0: It is quite the journey. Tell us, actually, a second sort of related question. I feel like there there's any number of listeners who are going to hear the phrase Marine Corps University and thinks it sounds a little a little odd. Like, what what is the Marine Corps University? What is its place in the sort of firmament of professional the, military
1: education? All the military, all the militaries have a massive professional military education pro- program, and that starts with training, and then it goes into education, really at the command staff level. And the Command Staff College, which is part of Marine Corps University, has a few hundred students each year, and it gives an accredited master's degree. And and then they go back out to the fleet. Hopefully, some of that knowledge is put to good use. A certain percentage of them will come to the War College, and this is the Marine, the Army, and Navy War College. That's where I actually teach, and that's where they're supposed to learn the higher levels of of strategy and how to think about the context of war as opposed to, you know, that that how to do your day-to-day job better. Right. And that also gives an accredited master's degree. So it's it's an interesting assignment. What makes it different from other programs where you can get degrees in international relations and things like that is that a high percentage of my students are going to be general officers. When you get somebody in international relations, they may or may not rise to a level where they're going to be using that for decision-making purposes. An incredibly high percentage of the people I teach go on to be generals, congressmen, senators. The impact, the impact of the war college is far beyond the all the war college is far beyond the, the other programs that are probably more famous.
0: Yeah. And so given then the the sort of the, the the weight of your work and its importance, why Rome? You've written about any number of subjects.
1: What's what's the reason for this one? It's I call myself a Plato a NATO historian and there's a military historian and there's the I think the I think the system is running out of those as we become more and more hyper-specialized. So I have consistently tried to write in different areas from Greece, Rome, you know, my previous book before this is World War II. I've done a couple of, of volumes on that stretch across the time span on battles, campaigns, generals. I've always wanted to do this as a passion project ever since I read Luke Walk's Grand Strategy, the Roman Empire. He said, I, I have another take on that. And not necessarily that he has the wrong take. I don't think he does. just think he left out a lot of stuff. And there's been a tremendous amount of historical revision or knowledge in the last 40 years, 45 years since Luke Walk's book came out. So I wanted to. Yeah, it's just something I want to address. Now it's done. I'm actually going to move on from here. I've got another book to deliver. It's my first non-military history book, 33 AD, the year God died. What was the big picture? In the year They crucified Jesus. A little bit different take from all the thousands of books on the historical Jesus, which are all focused precisely on him and and Palestine, there was a Roman Empire to contend with. So it's building on this. And then I'm probably going to go back to World War II and looking at the, and then a lot of looking at what a future war is going to look like. So, you know, it's Plato the NATO story, and I don't want to get locked down. It also means I have to look at things from a different different perspective. So when you talk about Rome's strategy of empire, and as I lay out in my introduction, I am building on the work of great roman historians and i i list them in there i don't want to list them here because i'll be afraid to miss somebody I, i'm not debating their their this fundamental historical work which is absolutely awesome what i'm doing is saying well, let's look at this from the point of view as a strategist or as a military historian or somebody with military experience some of what you historians have put out there in your interpretations just cannot be correct let me fix those interpretations for you But without the fundamental, the foundational work these historians have done, particularly in the last 30, 40 years, David Potter, Chris Wickham, Peter Heber, I I would have had nothing to work with.
0: So you, you raised Edward Lutvac, and I, I wanted to ask you about him. Some of our listeners will know that I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think the the first book to deal squarely with this subject, that is to say, the strategy of Rome or the grand strategy of Rome, was written by Lutvac, as you say, about 40 years ago, Grand Strategy of the Roman Empire. And, you know, there's nothing controversial in how you just described, you know, contributing another book. I mean, it's been 40 years. There's more information. There's new information. People think about things differently. There's nothing necessarily strange at all. It's even normal to contribute with a new book on the same subject after that kind of passage of time. But you 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 did and you published the book. And then Mr. Lipak wrote a um, kind of sidewinding attack on the book and the pages of right. uh, of the Washington Free Beacon, you had a little response to that. I just wanted to ask you about that. What what was what was behind all that?
1: What was behind it is easy for forty years. Luke Wolk's book's been under attack by a large number, almost all of the Roman historians, and said he absolutely got this wrong. Now, having said that, I think there's a large group today that said, you know, he didn't get it all wrong. He, he's got an interpretation we have to take account of. But for 40 years, there's been numerous books, numerous works, magazine articles, the Cambridge ancient history volumes specifically laid out. Here's what the Romans could do strategy-wise, and here's what they can't. And without mentioning his name, it's a direct assault on Luke Walk's work, saying everything he wrote is absolutely wrong. So there's a man who has—it was his first book, I'm almost positive, and it was his PhD thesis— and he put it out there and he hit a critical topic that Roman historians had never wrote about before and never talked about or never fought on. Uh, I think there's a little bit of embarrassment on there is as an outsider. And and by the way, I'm an outsider and I'm hoping to get attacked as much as Luwak was because, you know, fighting, that kind of fight sells a lot of books. <laughs> the worst thing that could happen is they ignore my book. And I'm like, but I think he's just gotten so used to his book being attacked when he saw another book out on Roman strategy or a first book really since his 40, you know, 40 years ago, he just assumed he was going to be attacked. And he put out this review, which has, if you read, it says absolutely nothing about my book in there. It seems like he looked at the title and then looked at the index and then said, this is another book attacking me. I'm the first book, first thing that I know of in decades that has actually supported his major contentions. Uh, my, I, I, I'm supposed to debate him soon, and I'm like, "What are you going to debate me on?" I, 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 I backed up your, I backed up your main points, I'm the only one who did it. And I, I present a lot. You know, he put out his points. I'm presenting the evidence for it. You know, well, some of the mistakes, not mistakes that he made, was he wrote in the language of strategists with perclusive, de, perclusive defensive strategies and things along that, which, yeah. It, it, that's just that's a spe- specialized language that shouldn't be moved into the academic world then i'm expanding on what luke walk did you know you can leave Luke walk, but it's a military analysis of strategy if he's going to actually write grand strategy he's got to put diplomacy in there he's got to put the economics of this he's got to put the political state of the empire of certain times a total neglect of naval power none of that makes sense luke walk's work so even as I assume, Luke Walk got the foundational idea right. I've just added to that and taken it further because he ends at the third century crisis where the Roman Empire still had another 150 plus years left to go in it. And that, you know, you lose Diocletian, you lose Constantine, you lose. Why did the Roman Empire even fall? Doesn't make it into his book. So I've added all of that. Got it. It's, I, it. My reply in the Beaconette was basically, I, this is the first time I've ever been reviewed by an author who obviously did not read my book. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the knowing book reviewers, as I do, I feel like obviously is doing a lot of work in, in that <laughs> sentence. But That's okay, right. I take your point. I take your point. Well, we, we can use this then to kind of transition into into substance. So I, I read the look back book many, many years ago and was fascinated by it. And I think I was a young officer at the time, actually. And uh, his, among his big contentions, right, that was then subsequently attacked was a sort of simple, straightforward one, which I take you to agree with it. But I'm curious to know what the nuances are here, that the Romans did, in fact, have a grand strategy, right? And that this is something that critics attack, that we are kind of anachronistically, we being the modern, m- modern analysts, are anachronistically imposing back things that we are familiar with in terms of the statecraft of 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 our modern days where we we have you know a kind of multi-stage multi-layered strategic process that you know there's a military strat- a defense strategy nested within a national strategy and so forth and so on and we're assuming that the Romans, or we we are we are going and looking for and finding indications that the Romans had the same thing. But but really, it's just not the case. They just didn't think that way. They didn't have the maps to think that way. They didn't have the idea of borders to think that way. There's no record of them debating strategy in the ways that we debate strategy. And I take it that you you reject that. And also, as you point out, you're not necessarily in a disagreement with Lutvac. Lutvac rejected that. All right.
1: I think Lutwak was the first one to bring everyone's attention to the fact that there was a strategy, and then every those things that you listed there—that they didn't have the maps, they couldn't think of strategic terms—that's that's the counterattack, and it was some of the biggest names in the Roman history field. I, I don't want I I don't want to say them right now because many have passed on, and it just doesn't seem right. But they they. They got it wrong. And that there was a professor wheeler who wrote an audit, two, two articles in the Journal of Military, Society of Military History, Journal of Military History Magazine, soon after Luke Walk's work came out. And I'm going to paraphrase him. We have not been able to find in Rome this 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 the, what you're talking about, that they had a Roman national strategy and it was nested into blah 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 all the way down. But the fact to say that they don't have a couldn't have a strategy at all means that, and I'm paraphrasing this a bit, but you know, for 500 years, Rome spent two thirds of its national wealth, or uh, its the empire's wealth for its tax revenues to build thousands of miles of roads for military purposes, 3,000 miles of frontier fortifications, maintain 30 plus legions of strength of 400 to 500,000 men. A lot similar number of auxiliaries, two major fleets in the Mediterranean, and nobody once ever stopped and said, Hey, why are we doing this? They 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 obviously had a strategy. Somebody you know I go back and I'm looking at the writings of Aristotle and I'm seeing here's what a ruler should know and think about. And it literally spells out ends, ways, and means, which is how we think of strategy today. To assume in the process of between Aristotle's death and the Romans taking over, they lost that type of thinking is ridiculous, especially since the Romans spent a ton of their time reading the Greek works and that would have, would have read this Aristotle's thing. Could they do maps? You know, yes. Now, let's, let's talk about what you actually need for strategy. Susan Matern came out with a book, Rome and its Enemies, which laid out the Romans didn't have maps. They had itineraries. I, I would argue that they had certain maps, but they didn't have the you know the kind of geographical understanding of Europe we had. But they had a understanding that was perfect for strategic thinking, and it's it's these itineraries are maps. There's there's a couple still in extent the Antonine itinerary and the Putager, and I'm sure I pronounced that wrong itinerary, which are highly graphical. And let's say you're looking at Ravenna on that map and you want to get to Cologne. It has all the towns in between, how many days march it is from each town along that route. And it has that for the entire Roman Empire. So what you have is, if you're a Roman emperor and the Southern Danube, the Eastern Danube, Moesia, is being invaded by Goths and you need to move legions from Rome, you could pick up an itinerary or allegiance from the Rhine Frontier, you could pick up an itinerary and say, hey, I want to get from here to here. That's going to put me march me through these 10 cities. I'm going to have to make stops at each of these locations. And here's how many days march it could be. The itinerary tells you everything you need to know. The geography underneath it is of zero importance when you're doing strategic planning. This is literally how we do strategic planning today. If the United States hopefully won't do this, but it gets involved in the Ukraine war, our plan is going to look at. I'm going to load a ship at at Savannah with the, half the ferret ID and several ships, and then we're going to move them. All I care about is what's the next stop? It's Rotterdam or you know one of the big ports along the northern European coast, and then all I care about is the getting them on trains and how many train stops between the port and the uh, where, I'm, where I'm going to mobilize for the fight. Then I need a tactical map, which the Romans had plenty of those. They had reconnaissance parties going out and drawing. But all of that geography between the United States and the final rail stop we're going to, to reorganize the forces for the fight is of zero importance. When a military strategist today is putting together a plan, he doesn't need a map. He needs to collect the the nodes and the you know, hubs, you know hubs nodes. It's a nodal map. Where am I going to land? This is exactly what the Romans had. Did they have an idea of borders? Of course they did, or else all those legions that lined up on the Rhine and the Danube might as well could have just as easily have lined up on the in the Riviera and sunned themselves. If they didn't know borders, why did they build three thousand miles of frontier fortifications? Now other historians come in and said you know it really wasn't a border it was a zone of, it was a zone I'll give you that all right it's a zone it's it's 10 miles on either side but it doesn't negate the the military you know that this is a military frontier and there's a say it can't be a military frontier trade crossed it I'm like oh trade crossed the Iron Curtain too it was a military frontier every one of their examples just blows up as soon as you think about it and there's a Famous picture of showing a building, large building in the middle of the desert and said, we had papers from here, papyrus they found and said that this was an administrative center. Are we too quick to think about this as a Roman fort? And you look at the picture and there's granulated, there's a crenellated battlements on it. I mean, you show it to a second grader and say, what is this? They'll go, that's a fort. Of course, forts had other uses. A A medieval castle was a fort. But it was also the economic center of that region. It's where the trade fairs set up outside. It's, it's it's got a number of diplomatic and political functions. But historians for too long just wanted to forget about the military side of it. And to, you know, forget that Rome was a military empire built to, built on the back of the legions and maintained on the legions. Like that's not popular. War is icky. The
0: the way you lay it out is so you know compelling and makes it sound so commonsensical that I kind of I, I I sort of want to ask you, you know, what well what is really the alternative explanation then for the phenomenon as phenomena as they exist. I mean I would add to your to your list there. You know, there are documentary, there are there are documents that suggest that ancient political actors were perfectly capable of strategic thinking. I can't name any off the top of my head in the Roman context. In the Greek context, you know, you have a whole speech of Pericles and Thucydides that very Clearly explains a naval strategy for the Peloponnesian War, not in terms of operational plans, but that's not what we're talking about. Anyway, we're talking about a strategic concept. It is as clear and crisp and as as we would be pleased to have a position paper like that today outlining a strategic concept. I mean,
1: I starved the Roman Empire and I I give a couple of quotes of like here, Tacitus said when Augustus died and Tiberius took over, he was given certain documents. One of them was the State of the Empire, and it, 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 it reads like a strategic document. Here's your fleets, here's your legions, here's what they're doing. These legions are gross, aren't looking at the Rhine, have two jobs. They're, you know, keep the barbarians on the other side of the Rhine River and be prepared to march into Gaul at a moment's notice. These two legions of Pannonia are a strategic reserve. It spells it out in literal strategic terms. The problem is so much of, his, of Roman history is lost. You could probably take everything the Romans wrote, put it on a stack, and it would come up to about chest high. You could read that survives. You could read, and that includes the plays and you know, you know, artistic poems and things like that. You can read everything the Romans left us in 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 two months of dedicated reading time. So much has been lost that you know we we have to speak from silence. We've got to we've got to, you know, but the historians that have talked to us. Have talked to us in strategic terms or have given us, hey, Roman is Rome's looking at this in strategic terms. You know, one of the things they, you know, and you brought it up, was, how could they? They didn't have they didn't have a system or to think strategically. Well, no one did until the Germans, you know, the Prussians built the German general staff, great general staff. But no one says Napoleon did not think in strategic terms. He had his advisors, he had his counselors. And Roman empires had the same thing. They had their conciliums, and they had archives that they could look at and they could see how people had done things before. It doesn't mean that you know you don't do ad hoc strategy. We have we you know the United States of America has a national strategy, and it seems like day to day we're doing ad hoc strategy because you know you have to adapt. A grand strategy is that a Romans is you know on the military side, is very simple. But there's bad people on the other side of those frontiers. Keep them out. You now, and the the, economic, the diplomacy is keep the keep the internal keep the and the politics is keep the internal empire stable. Deal with whoever we have to on the other side to keep them peaceful. Let's get some awareness that we're about to be attacked. And then the economics is so simple as to be simple. I need a strong economic foundation to maintain my military power. Uh, Rome in the third century. And well, look Ed Lutwalk does a very good job showing how the their strategy almost fell apart. I mean, they they were pushed on all sides. The empire was split up. Apart. Gaul and Spain had broken away. Zenobia had broken away Egypt and a lot of a lot of the Eastern Empire. But what remained was the economic core, Italy and North Africa. And that core would, you know, would eventually move eastward. But as long as that core was protected, Rome had the revenues for a comeback. Rome doesn't fall until they lose their economic core. You know, the, the Vandals, probably 15,000 or less warriors, sneak into North Africa across the Straits of Gibraltar. And they're pretty, you know, in practical terms, they're sort of ignored. And there's good reasons for that. There's Huns in Northern Europe. But the answer was ignore the Huns. Let them take Gaul. Protect your the, the economic center, the strongest economic position in, in the empire was North Africa. It's where the wheat was. It's, it's, it's everything. Send everything you have, wipe out the Gauls. When they lost North Africa, Chris Whitcomb is the first one to say this that I know of. It broke the tax spine of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. And without that, Foundational tax spine, those foundational revenues, the Roman, the Empire was 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 on a fixed fixed timeline of its rapid demise. They realized this. They, they sent multiple armies, and the Eastern Empire sent multiple armies to try and retake that, but weren't able to do it until too late. Now the Eastern Empire survives because their tax spine is Egypt, Syria, Palestine. And with Constantinople got in the strait, the, you know, the busy the, the straits, the barbarians were never able to cross. They they had to fight off the Sassanids coming from the east. But if they were capable of doing that, the economic core of the Eastern Empire held until, you know, the Muslim Muslim invasions overtook it in the 730s. And even then it made us a couple of good comebacks.
0: Can, can I ask you a kind of a double-barreled question that, that sure. takes us back to the start of the period that you're covering? So, you you are covering the grand strategy of the Roman Empire, but there is right. of course a republic before that. And I guess my question is one. And I, I've not make it made a survey of the literature here, so maybe I'm just there's just stuff out there that I don't know about. But why why all this attention to the imperial strategy? And I think based on superficial analysis of what I've seen out there, less attention to Republican military strategy, but maybe I'm wrong about that. So that's question A. And then related to question B is, you know, what are the continuities and discontinuities between the Republican period in strategy and the imperial period that you are covering?
1: I don't know. You know, there's not been a book on, that I am aware of on Republican, the strategy of the Roman Republic. Did they did they have a strategy? In the early days, the Republic, it's survival. Second, then after that, it's expansion into Italy and then expansion to sicily which leads to the punic wars so there's a lot of number of works on those specific periods where you have books on the early roman empire and then you have you know livy's histories and you have polybius who comes in and talks and gives us a pretty good account on, of what remains of his work of the punic wars and that's and that's the beginning of rome's great expansion it destroys its only real rival in the Western Mediterranean. It get, by it gets northern Africa from the from the Carthaginians. It takes Spain from the Carthaginians. It takes southern Gaul from the Carthaginians. It becomes unrivaled master of Italy. And then during the Punic Wars, it also gets starts getting involved over in the Eastern Empire. And that Rome seems reluctant to do that, but there's a number of books that cover the topic. You know, the the, the Roman expansion period, fighting the Macedonians, then the Seleucids, and there's some, there's great stories. But that Rome is all about expansion, and that expansion paying for itself. I mean, the money that they extracted from Carthage, the money they extracted from the Eastern Empire, money they you know, money and grain they extracted from Egypt. Rome pe- that those. It made war I mean, a very profitable enterprise. And then you get to the period of the instability, starting with Sulla, uh, the Gracchi brothers, and Marius, and uh, you know, Rome Rome failed to make an adjustment. And I'm not sure they ever got the adjusted as much as they needed to. I guess Diocletian set them on the right path, but not even sure then. They were still a city-state now trying to rule an empire. They never changed their foundational administrative or political infrastructure to handle a a very different situation from what those institutions were created for. And then when these constant wars meant you had to have a military in being all the time, that military became very dedicated to their generals. The generals are the ones that got them paid. The generals are the ones that got them booty if they won great victories. And when these generals returned with their armies, they the you know, the armies were political with their political power. It's a great line in the movie Cleopatra, where Red, Red, Red. Rex Harrison is playing Caesar. And he goes to Mark Anthony's uh, he goes, When when I'm away, Mark Anthony speaks for Caesar in Rome. And, and the generals saying, and, and as always, Caesar's rule Caesar's Caesar's word is law. And they go to walk away, and Rex Harrison, Caesar calls him back and says, Make sure Mark Anthony keeps the legions intact. They make my law legal. <laughs> now, one sentence he captures everything. The, the 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 legions take over, and now you have a Roman Empire. I don't know that you could write a strategy, because you know when they say the Romans didn't have a grand strategy, they really don't in the Republic, because the the the, the situation was changing so rapidly. Here you go from city-state to empire. You know, they, they, they had several, they, they, you could say they had several strategies. Survival, expand, win the Punic War, build the Eastern Empire. That could be done. That probably has been done as history, not as a strategic narrative. Now, the difference, to, if I get this right on your last part of that question, was the Republic was expanding. Oh, in the Roman Revolution, by the way, I'll draw people's attention to it. There's an older book by Professor Symes, S-Y-M-E-S-E. On the Roman Revolution, I don't think it's ever been done better since. It's one of the great books on Roman history out there. And if you go look at where am I going to start my readings, start with science, but well, start with my book and then go back and read some. <laughs> but what happens is, you know, supposedly Augustus tells Tiberius in his in his final statements, "Be happy with what you got. Do not, you know, the, solidify the empire. Don't try and grow it." But you always have this impetus. The Roman Empire is to be glorious to to add something. you know and if you add Britain you add Dacia 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 and they eventually give that both out England much later but Dacia pretty quickly written in historical terms you've got a sated empire the, the 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 vocabulary is always out there that we rule the world or thing and that changes to we rule what we own and we influence the world but you know after a while Tiberius quickly realizes Germany is not worth the cost. Can we conquer Germany? Probably. But, you know, we lost three legions in the Wald. We march in there every couple of years. We slaughter a lot of Germans and we have to march back in again. When are we going to make that a tax revenue, you know, a revenue producing state? Probably a long, long time. He just says, stop. He ends the invasions of Germany. The Rhine and the Danube become settled frontier zones. I won't say borders, the frontier zones. The Parthians, periodically, they'll attack the Parthians, trying to expand the empire. That becomes considerably more difficult when the Parthians are overthrown by Sassanids, who are a much more vigorous group. And now Rome is in the first time trying to hold on to what it has instead of beating up on the Parthians every 50 years or so and taking, you know, they march right to the Parthian capital, and then they march back, and they eventually build out to the Euphrates River. You know, Trajan gets out there and Hadrian, the next emperor, gives it away. I make a good case that Hadrian probably should have held on to it. I think I make a good case. But the, the main difference is Republic is expanding from day one, and the empire is a mostly sated political entity. It's it wants to protect what it
0: has rather than add to it. And that that question of, of satiation, that's that's basically an economic question, the way you put it. Like that's how you conclude. You've gone right. far enough. as there's you're the cost benefit and the literal cost benefit analysis is turning against you?
1: In many ways, it has because you know you, you take over the Seleucid Empire, you take all the gold, for, you know thousands of talents and treasuries plus all the je- revenue it's generating. Taking over Germany is just a core center. It's not going to generate anything near the revenues necessary to maintain peace and stability in the legions in that area. But the other side of that is. You know the expansion was paying for itself, and then suddenly you're not expanding, it's not paying for itself anymore. You you now have to pay the legions out of your current revenues instead of what you're taking away from an enemy. I think it, people have not have not realized how much wealthier the Roman Empire would be than or was than the Republic or even those states in the Republic. I mean, if you lived in Syria before the Roman Empire took over, you're a farmer. You got invaded every every generation, maybe every decade. Farms were burnt, grain mills were burnt to the ground, storage facilities were burned, destroyed. Even if you rebuilt them, you only got back to where you were before the next invasion came and wrecked it. So now the stability of the Roman Empire, you could build infrastructure with absolutely no fear that an army is going to march through any time in your lifetime and record. So you're... You're 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 setting up a initial infrastructure. And then you're building more, and you're you're putting more more ground on this. Hurdle. You're building bigger warehouses. You're you're able to trade because the Roman Empire has made the Mediterranean peaceful. I don't think it's you know we don't capture that well enough in the statistics, and it's very hard to figure out the economies of the Roman Empire and the Roman Republic based on what little knowledge they have left to us. But I think there's professors out there, and bad names are not coming to my head, so I won't own them. But in the last three or four decades, there's been a couple of superb works on the Roman economy. And, you know, hey, this is a much more advanced economy than we originally gave it credit for. And it does have a lot of agricultural infrastructure and experimentation that is going on. So this is a much richer economy, easily able to absorb the cost, the military cost of maintaining the empire, as long as you, as long as you don't let that economy get fractured from the political center, which I was talking about earlier, when the Vandals get in and crack the tax spine, the empire. You know, if they if they wiped out the Vandals, we might still be part of the Roman Empire.
0: Do you see a change over? I mean, the empire obviously lasts for several centuries. Right. Presumably, they're not thinking about it. It being strategy, they're not thinking about how to preserve the empire using the tools at their disposal. The same way at the start as they are at the middle as they are at the end. What are the big periods? What are the major muscle shifts over
1: the course I mean, of the period you're covering? I mean, I, I, if if I had to limit myself, I'd say three. The principate, the first two hundred years. Why change? Everything's working perfectly for all practical purposes. You know, after after the you know, after 69, the year of the four emperors, you have the five good emperors. You you've got over 125 years of stability. Are the legions fighting on the borders, yes, but that doesn't impact the Roman Empire. That's like, you know, I don't think we have an analogy today, but maybe, you know, the US forces are fighting in Korea, and then they're fighting in Vietnam, and then they're fighting in Afghanistan, Iraq. These are expensive. But does it barely touches the core of the United States. If it wasn't for newscasts and videos, you you would not know what was going on. The Roman Empire was maintained, you know, fighting on the on the on the border lines. So the principle is fine. And then everything changes. There's a climatic change, there's on the other side of the border, there are amalgamation, the bigger groups, uh, the Papians disappeared, they're replaced by the assassinists much more dangerous enemies than Rome. And they all come at the same time. And there's there's also plagues. I mean, it, it's just horrible. The first 50 years of the third century. So call you the prince a bit, and you have this horrible period where Rome almost, is almost destroyed. The empire is almost destroyed. It comes back under Diocletian and Constantine. And they put in an infrastructure that could have held for a very, very long time, except for civil wars. Rome kills itself. We we get civil war after civil war after Constantine's death. His three brothers, his three sons, go at it for, dec- over a decade, and there's one civil war after another. Eventually, the Eastern Empire breaks off from the Western. You know, people on the military side say, "Hey, the I don't know what." The Battle of Adrianople is a changing point. Well, the empire lasted another hundred years after that. The, the Romans maybe lost fifteen thousand soldiers. That would have just been a bad day for Julius Caesar. It shouldn't. Have, it should have impacted the empire. Except after that, the Eastern Empire and the Western Empire don't help them. You know, help each other. You know, if the Eastern Empire got in trouble in the, or before Adrianople, the whole Western Empire was at its disposal with all of its wealth, troops, and everything. You, you, you see less and less and less than that, and at towards the end. So you have three periods: Principate everything works fine. Why change anything? Then a crisis happens, and you have the rebuilding period, Constantine, Diocletian, and then you have the just uh, trying to maintain that, but they can't because of civil wars. And this is where you can't adapt. They knew what they had to do to beat the barbarians coming across the border. They needed something that moved faster than the legions moved. But if if you get away with your legions and rebuilt the cavalry heavy force, like the common Comintensis, and went overboard, your opponent in the Eastern Empire may have kept his legions. So you built an army to fight the barbarians. It's useless fighting Roman legions in the open field. So they've got to stay with an antiquated military system, not adapted to the new threats that are coming at them across the border, because the cardinal threat to any emperor is a civil war. And if he's adapted his entire military force to hold off the barbarians, and suddenly six legions march from the south, he does not have the right force for that. So they can never adapt. You you see this with the Persians too. Persians and Greeks, you look at battle after battle, you know, Marathon, Plataea, Rannicus, Issus, Gorglamellia, sometimes called Arabella. It's heavy, heavy Greek infantry shatters Lightly armed Persians. Why didn't they learn? Why didn't they make a heavy, heavy armored force? Heavy Greek, you know, similar to Greeks. They would hire mercenaries to do that for them, but they never developed it because their main threat. They never saw the Greeks as their biggest threat. Was Scythian raiders coming down by the tens of thousands? And that, this is their this is their, not institutional memory, their historical memory. This has happened where they loot, destroy, wreck everything. And the only way you can keep up with them is fast-moving infantry, lightly lightly armored, fast-moving infantry, and fast-moving cavalry. So that's what they do. They said, if we adapt for this, Matt, what appears in the early days, a minor threat from Greece, we, we can't fight the Scythians. And if those come, we know what they can do. The Greeks, the Greeks don't seem to be much interested in going deep into our empire. And then one day Alexander, the Great, comes along and says, I am interested in doing that. And they... they they never have the right army to match Alexander the Great's army. They have a big army, but it's never been adapted to fight the Greeks in a, in a stand-up, set-piece battle because they never saw that as their threat. Rome's the same way. They could see the threats and externally. They know they have to adapt, but they can't because the internal threat forces them to keep the legions as they are to a large, to a large degree. And sorry, you, you may
0: have said it, but I want to... Make sure I understand the point. So they have to keep things the way they are because of the internal civil right. threat. But what specific adaptations? Talk talk a little bit about the threat that the the barbarians pose. And maybe there's, I presume, there is variation amongst the different kinds of barbarian threat. And what what specific military responses were needed but weren't pursued?
1: When you fight a okay, the barbarian threat becomes very if you read ta- very different. If you read Tacitus, it's it's dozens of of tribes. And now we're talking at the very beginning of the empire. And then you get to Arminius. Aram, Arme, Arminius. I only read these words. I never get to hear people say <laughs>
0: them.
1: And he's got his history of the of the later period. And when you see these other histories of the later period, and a few, the all those German tribes have consolidated into the Franks and the Alemanni. All the tribes of the Danube seem to, you know, there's still remnants and pieces of them here and there, but they've the Goths are everything. And then behind the Goths come the Huns. These are much bigger amalgamations. It's much easier, you know, if you're going, if you want to fight a small tribe sending 2,000 warriors, that's no problem. But once they've amalgamated and they've got a political system, they've got a high king, numerous sub-kings, and they come across that border with... 40,000, 50,000 men. And now remember, it's a much wealthier society. They've been trading with Rome for centuries. They've gotten rich trading with Rome. They Thousands upon thousands of the German barbarians worked worked in the Roman army as auxiliaries, some of them as legionnaires. They, have, they, are, they are trained in the Roman methods. They are much better than the earlier barbarians. They're much more disciplined, that they can fight like a Roman army fights. You know, when you read about the Goth heavy cavalry, that's armored cavalry they have out there. They're rich enough to do that, and they're much better trained. This is a very, very different threat. Rome needs heavy cavalry, needs fast moving light cavalry. It tries to do this to a degree when it builds the field armies, the cometencias. There's other problems. One, you know, if you the Goths could have a heavy cavalry because they got the the plains of Eastern Europe behind them and you could feed all those horses and take care of them. You can't do that in, in in the Roman Empire. There's very few places where you could put down thousands of horses and feed them. So it, it, there is there is that inability of the to maintain large cavalry forces. Now, if you built a large cavalry force and a large cavalry force meets an infantry force, it's unbroken infantry. Cavalry can't do anything to it. You know, you see movies where cavalry charges into infantry. No, if the kid, infantry has its spear points out, it doesn't matter how brave the Roman soldier, the the, the barbarian soldier is on the on the horse, the horse will not impale itself. You know, it's not the soldier's bravery, it's the horse's bravery. You cannot break a formation. So what the, the the adoption needed is maintain the frontiers much stronger, pay, pay for them. Zosmius basically says that Constantine... Lost the empire, yeah, weakened the empire because he weakened the frontiers to build field armies behind. I'm not sure. As L. Smith gets it correct, absolutely correct. He likes to blame Christians for everything. He was a pagan historian, but there's some truth to that. I mean, if the the field armies take a long time to move, in the early days, the 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 walls, that fact, the fortifications on the frontier, were expected to hold out for a while. Help would come. And they didn't. If, if they broke through, limit the penetration. That the strategic reserve was not hidden a month's march away. It was a legion to your north, you know, because the, the barbarians can only hit one sector with one tribe. Maybe they can get several tribes together, but you're still only talking five, 6,000 warriors. They break through one section of allegiance to the north and south, of not under any pressure. And then in 406, it seems that the whole Rhine gets attacked at the same time and they break. Roman Roman formations became very artillery bound, lots of missiles, ballistas, catapults, all of that makes for slow moving. But if you do away with all of that and your internal enemy comes at you with an army that has has that, you're not going to be able to stand up to them on a on a battlefield. Hmm. So could would Rome if, if, if for Rome to have survived, two things had to happen. They had to put in a political infrastructure that ended civil wars, and they had to make sure that the economic core of the empire, which I would say would in the West would be Spain, North Africa, and Italy, were, would never fell to an enemy. You can lose, you can, you can lose Gaul, you can lose all of the Danubian provinces, you would still have your economic core. Without those, without those two things, you're doomed. So, what are the lessons? You know, imagine we're
0: we're speaking to a room of your your students, these field grade officers, quite a few of whom will be generals, maybe some other future policymakers in other respects. What are the important lessons that your research here on Roman strategy has for us? You know, what what what's most
1: applicable to America in
0: the twenty first century?
1: Okay, I end my chapter with that, so I'm not. I don't want to paraphrase it too much. I will talk about what I what my thoughts now, and one. The United States has to be maintaining a growth economy. If you want to if you wish to be or you wish to maintain yourself as the number one power in the world, then you need to focus your focus your attention on economic power. And then the thing would be, oh, then we should cut the military. Well, the military is very inexpensive. you know we we grew our economy at incredible rates of speed throughout the entire Cold War. When we we're paying 6 to 10% of our GDP on the military. Now we're paying a little over 2%, and our economy isn't growing near as fast. The military is not the core center. Matter of fact, but that leads to the second part of this. The U.S. has to be engaged, and that means militarily engaged very far forward. Where the United States retreats, people not people who do not have our best interests at heart will move in. The, that's the nature of great state rivalries, another book I have on great strategic rivalries by Oxford is you know when one retreats the vacuum is filled by the other great power so China if you if we wished if we do not want to see a Chinese dominated political diplomatic grand strategic environment we have to stay forward which means maintaining a strong military presence outside of the United States our frontier zone let's call it And we said, well, that's expensive. Well, it's not as expensive as not doing it. So the way I say this to people, to my students, and I haven't done it this year, but I'll get to it, is think of yourselves as as international bouncers. If you owned a bar and there was fights every week, you get a certain type of clientele in that bar. What do you do? Beer, beer, Beer drinking guys mostly who want their beer cheap and a lot of it. You're not going to sell a bottle of champagne into, for $400 over in the corner while there's fights going on. So you get the best two bouncers in the world, and you pay them a half a million dollars a piece. You say, I need this place to be peaceful. And they do. They make it peaceful. And suddenly, a higher class, a better class of people start coming in. Not better class, a richer class who don't want to get into fights every week. Women will come in, and men will follow to spend their money, sometimes vice versa. At the but. Now, you sell your bar and you make $5 million on it. The new guy comes in and he's like, wow, this bar is just producing all sorts of money. This is, if this was a world economy, it would show a, a tremendous amount of growth. And he looks down and says, but I'm paying a million dollars to those two bouncers down there. Why am I doing that? We haven't had a fight in this bar in five years. I, I'm not, that's a core center. I'm getting rid of it. And the bouncers go away and a month later, there's a fight. Two weeks later, there's another fight. There's no bounces to stop them. The fights the the fights become more frequent. They get more dangerous. And your rich clientele after fight number three doesn't want to spend that money there anymore. That's not what they came for. Suddenly, you've got an economic ruin on your hand. What appeared to be your core center is literally what's making it possible for your economy to grow. Free trade, keeping the seas, the sea lanes open. This is all done, not because everyone wants to get along. It's done because there's a U.S. military presence out there that makes it possible. And when you remove that presence, anarchy comes right behind it. If, 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 if the British Empire had made it known early on in 1914, if you go to war with France, we are definitely coming in against you. Germany may have said, eh, wait, that might not be worth it. If the United States and NATO had said, we are going to support Ukraine with an unbelievable amount of military power and announced that, Putin may have said, well, this might not be the right time to move. You know, When Taiwan becomes more threatened as the United States appears to pull back from Asia on a military basis, if you wish to be economically strong and have no political power or diplomatic power out in the world, become the European Union. But they only have whatever power they have is only possible because they have shelter behind U.S. military power. So Rome learned. Rome knew this from the beginning. If you wish to maintain your strategic situation as is, the strategic status quo, you have to have a military more powerful than any enemy that comes at you, and you have to have an economy that could support it. I mean, if you only have two lessons in grand strategy, that's it. A strong military, forward-posted, and an economy that could support it. End of story. James Lacey, author of Room,
0: Strategy of Empire. Really appreciate you making the time. Thanks for the great conversation. Thank you. It's been wonderful being here. This is a Nebulous Media production. Find us wherever you get your
1: podcasts.